Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert Hazelton, and I'll be your host. Today I'm going to talk about the Netflix Dracula show, The Band Rush, this board game called Time of the Daleks, Doctor Who. I guess it came out in 2017, but it was new to me. And finally, I'm going to discuss my new project, the Allison Turner comic. Got a lot to talk about, so we're going to dive right in. I'm going to start by talking about the Netflix Dracula show that came out recently by Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis. And, um, you know, it's hard to really get into this one too much because I've seen a lot of people really hate on it. And I don't blame them by any stretch. There's a lot to hate about this show. It's, I mean, there's a lot of bad Dracula out there. Uh, I've even got a few of them. Argento Dracula, I couldn't even finish. Then there is uh, the Bonnie and Clyde versus Dracula. That's a little recent. Uh, Dracula 3000. There's some real crap. So I'm not sure why we held this particular show to any sort of high standard. Unless maybe someone who really dug it, liked uh, Moffat's work, and thought that he was going to do a great job with it. Now, on episode one, it kind of follows the book a little bit. Jonathan Harker being tormented by Dracula in the castle. And the second episode follows Dracula onto the Demeter, and it really deviates from the book at that point. But I liked that one so much, I'd watch it again right now. All three of them are an hour and a half long. They're longer than most vampire movies, really. Uh, at least cheesy ones, I should say. Um, but this one had a lot of appeal to me. I thought it was really well crafted. Then the third one deviates considerably. And in order to really talk about that, I'm going to have to say that uh, this is going to have some spoilers. So if you're really into the idea of watching Dracula, uh, the next few moments will likely have some things that could uh, reveal stuff to you. However, it's unlikely that you haven't seen some things that will uh, have already um, given away the, the next plot points. But as you enter the third episode, you finally get introduced to the characters from the book, uh, Jack Seward, uh, Lucy Westernra, um, Quincy Morris. And at that point, it has been 120-some years. It's now the modern day, and Dracula comes wandering out of the water, and he finds himself on the shores of England, finally. But, you know, a very different England than he anticipated. I have to say that this episode in particular had a whole lot of concepts that they just weren't able to, willing to, or had time to fully explore. There is the Harker Foundation. It doesn't really get enough time. There is the whole concept of what Dracula's doing with himself, what he wants to do, why he's even around. That doesn't get explored. And they really only focus on two or three elements. Things that, you know, if you watch it, you might appreciate. So I'll leave those alone. But all around, I say that episode three does kind of derail and ruin the entire series. Now, when I say entire, it makes it sound a lot more in-depth than it is. It really isn't. It's really just three mini movies that happen to uh, coordinate somewhat. I liked the guy who played Dracula quite a bit. Um, his name is Klaus Bang. He was really fun. I I liked him a lot. I didn't like many other people. Uh, the person who played Van Helsing was cool, but I don't know. I can't recommend the Netflix Dracula 
even if you're already a subscriber to Netflix, there are just so many other things to watch and experience. I can't really say that Dracula is worth your time. Uh, I think you'd be wasting it, to be honest. Um, especially considering that there's so much coming out that might be a lot better. Uh, the October Faction comes out in, in January. That looks more interesting and fun. All around, I feel like Dracula is burdened by its own self-importance and its own uh, arrogance. It's patting itself on the back for being original while throwing in all kinds of silly modernisms. Uh, I described the first episode as Dracula being one of those 80s villains where everybody else is in the time period, but the villain happens to be like from the hot second that the movie's being made. So they're dropping modern quotes and, and quipping and using one-liners, and they're not at all serious. So it was almost as if they wanted to go as far away from Gary Oldman's uh, interpretation of the character as possible and not be at all serious with the Dracula. The times that he is, he's really chilling and he's really cool. And I like the way he did those, very much the way I liked, that, um, liked Alan Rickman in Robin Hood. I liked how he did it. And I thought he was fine, but his character and what they gave him uh, hampered the whole experience. So the bottom line is Netflix Dracula. I liked it, but I also like a lot of really crappy vampire movies. Uh, And when I say like, I mean, I enjoy the experience and I have fun watching them. But I recognize that many of those movies are garbage. (laughs) Like Dracula 3000 was complete trash. But I still had fun watching it for the most part. Argento's Dracula was such trash, I couldn't actually finish it. And this Netflix Dracula kept me engaged through all three episodes. Uh, I made it through them, I watched them all, and I had a great time. Um, I just, I think that that is unique, and it's rare, and it happened because of my affection for vampire films. It wasn't because it was super awesome and amazingly made it's really gross in a lot of ways and they have no qualms about showing really nasty stuff uh the trailer did make it look like it'd be worse than it is but that is not saying a whole lot so netflix dracula uh again i don't recommend it and if you've just gotta get your vampire on maybe start with the second episode and see if you like it. I don't know. I I, I guess I can't really make any recommendations. If you're like me, you're going to watch it anyway. But if you're on the fence, just just don't bother. Anyway, let's move on. I want to talk about the band Rush. So this past week, Neil Peart passed away. He's the drummer for Rush and their lyricist. Um, It really hit me pretty hard. And I have to say, back when I was just getting into music in general i'd been listening to like thrash metal and really heavy stuff and one day my dad calls me out of my room and he sits down and and plays me the um uh live version of 2112 and i was kind of blown away because it wasn't super fast and it wasn't super heavy comparatively to what i was listening to at the time but there was just an artistry there that that struck me and While I didn't dive into Rush at that exact moment, it did give me the familiarity to understand that they were something that I should be paying attention to. So several years later, uh, around the time I was 16, my very, very close friend, 
wanted me to come and play some music with them. And he said that uh, we should do a cover. And the the one that they chose was Show Don't Tell off the Presto CD. Um, my friend happened to have a guitar player magazine that had the tablature for it. So I got hold of it and I learned the song. And I have to say, it just, that struck my lifelong affection for their work. And then I really dove deep. I read the biography. I watched documentaries. I saw them perform four times. My friends and I, as teenagers, played the first eight albums of their material. And that was that was just how we improved ourselves and, and the way that we practiced. So when I got the news about Neil and and read that, I was I was pretty devastated. I, I went back and I listened to my favorite stuff. Obviously, it's evolved over the years, um, but I listened to several of the CDs and just was blown away again. And it is so sad to have lost such a legend like that. He had already retired for other reasons, his shoulder and, and, and other things. He just couldn't keep up that that rigorous pace that he required in order to be able to uh, feel accomplished and then on top of that he got that uh, brain cancer and and ended up passing away but it, it it's impossible for me to express just how influential their work was on me as a formative musician the there's so many parts of rush that i hear in in my work when i listen to my guitar playing in particular but it's those words, the lyrics. I just love them. I love the fact that that they sort of they they gave me the boost to listen to things like Queensrÿche and and see how they took the storytelling um, music to that level and and all that stuff. I don't know. You know, twenty one twelve as I already mentioned, that was a great one and 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 my first introduction. And then from there, it was things like you know, hemispheres and, and the fountain of Lamneth, all of these just, I can, I can hear them in my head. If I just close my eyes for half a second. Um, I think that Neil Pert probably left behind hundreds of thousands of people who were just floored by, by, by his loss, um, from pros to amateurs to the rank and file folk who just like listening to music. Uh, even if people didn't necessarily love Rush, they thought he was an amazing drummer, and they knew it. And he has left his mark forever. I mean, without without him as a pioneer of sorts, I don't think that we would really have a band like Dream Theater or their drummers so much in the mainstream. I think that they take it too far, because one of the things that Neil managed to do is be this incredible drummer who performed all these crazy parts and and super strange time signatures, and yet they still managed to keep it in a very oh accessible way. It's it's more uh, commercial. Uh, there there's a few songs obviously that are a little less for the uh, average listener, but for the most part, they have far more of a commercial appeal than say Dream Theater. And that is just incredible. And then, again, back to the words, 
just the lyrics. Neil Peart explored a lot of really amazing concepts through his his visions. And, you know, if you are already a fan, you, you know what I'm talking about. Things like uh, Red Sector A is a great example. They were having the opportunity to go to, I think it was a NASA site, and they saw something. Red Sector A, and then it spawned that whole song, which sounds more like a communist camp than anything. And then you've got songs like The Trees, which everyone knows, and Subdivisions, and on and on and on. Uh, I know a lot of people who have a favorite song that really spoke to them lyrically, um, whether the music did or not, but they all conjure images. Uh, Middletown Dreams is the song that I always think of uh, when... When I think back to long road trips and stuff, I just I consider that song. It's hard to talk about, but uh, he was he was a lot of fun. Listening to him talk, he was a very shy guy, but when he would talk in interviews and that sort of thing, he was so animated to talk about the work. And he, his passion for it was so obvious. You know, and that's what I talk about when I chat with friends and stuff about doing cover songs, one of the things that is absolutely essential to pulling it off, regardless if you are doing it exactly the same way as the original artist or if you're putting your own spin on it, the the passion of that piece is absolutely essential. You have to know it in your heart the way that they know it in theirs. And not 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 to say that you have to have the same feelings, but you have to have your own feelings to put into it. That's why I think that some of the people who cover songs or even people who come along and sing songs for older bands don't sound as good. Even though they're they're technically perfect, they don't have the same passion for it. And so you can hear his, and that's why when he's up there doing those drums, it's not just technically perfect, it's it's passionate because he really believes in it. And that's what I guess I'm saying in regards to doing cover songs for us as musicians is that we have to find some passion for that piece, whether it's just that we love the hell out of the song and we've listened to it 800 million times, or we learn to love it through the eyes of the people who made it, or even the eyes of the fans who love it. Somehow that is how you can get a song out there to really resonate with people. If it's a cover and the best way to start to find that passion and understand it is to see people like Neil Peart talk about their work or or listen to any any of these artists that aren't just in it for the money or the fame. You know, the people who are in it to perfect their art will definitely teach you how to really care about your own. And I feel like Neil Peart really did leave behind a legacy of showing us how to love what we do and really look at the world differently. If if you're the type of person that listens to music and really pays attention to lyrics, then I think Rush is for you. And if you haven't already discovered them, then you should definitely try them out. The newer stuff is a little bit easier on the ears as far as the, the singing goes because Getty doesn't sing nearly as high-pitched and piercing. But if you can go back towards the past and listen to the way that they were, then I, I don't think you would you would be sorry. You know, it's got some 70s vibe. They were clearly trying to ape the success of people like Led Zeppelin and that sort of thing. But they really came into their own with Fly By Night when 
Neil Peart joined the band and uh, helped them write some lyrics and brought a different uh, intensity to the drums. Um, you know, a long time ago, when I was a kid, I always wondered if John Rutsey, the guy who left Rush, regretted it. But I, I sincerely doubt that he could, because to assume that Rush would have gone on to the level of success that they did without Neil Peart is naive. A lot of what they are came from those lyrics and his influence on the band in general. And that's not to say that Getty and Alex aren't great players. They're amazing. I mean, Getty Lee in particular is just killing it. He's playing multiple instruments at the same time while singing. He's incredible. Alex Lifeson, you watch him perform live and it's it's simplicity. It's the most elegant simplicity you'll see. He's he's amazing as well. So uh, they had they were all fantastic, but without Neil's lyrics to elevate it and sort of differentiate it from the other performers out there, I don't think they would have gone on to be as successful. So while I often wondered if John was was upset that he did it, and maybe he would have been, um, I hope that he realized that that maybe they they as a collective at the time didn't have what it took, and the right chemistry had to come in, and that chemistry happened to be Neil Peart. Um, yeah. He had a tragic life. If you know anything about it, he lost his daughter to a car accident, and six months later, he lost his wife to cancer. He went on a long road trip to try and get over it, wrote a book about it. He's a fascinating person, and I'd really encourage you to look into the band more and him. He has a lot of inspirational stories, and he's written a lot of great stuff. And if you want to stay away from the uh, true life stuff, he wrote a book with Kevin J. Anderson, the sci-fi author, who happens to be a huge progressive rock fan. And that, uh, I think it covers their Clockwork Angels CD, sort of a supplemental book to go along with the music. Anyway, it was really sad to lose Neil Peart. He was 67 years old, and I promise you that the world is a lesser place without him. He was just such a great guy. Um, and... Yep, that definitely that definitely hit me. Anyway, let's move on to some more light-hearted topics. I just bought the game Doctor Who The Time of the Daleks, which is a board game, and I guess it came out in 2017. I have no idea how I had no idea, <laughs> but um, now I do. So the game itself came today, and I got the expansion for the 10th and 5th Doctor along with it. And in a couple of days, I'll have the, um, I think it's the 7th and 9th Doctor is coming. I saw that the 3rd and 8th Doctor had an expansion, but then the site that I found said it was no longer in production, so maybe it's coming soon. I guess the company that makes these games kind of gets hold of really big licenses, Dune, Firefly, and then... According to people online, please please note that I'm just quoting online folks, they drop the ball. Now, whether or not that's true, I have no idea, but it has been two years, and there's only three expansions out for it. There is the 5th uh, um, and 10th Doctor, and then there is the 7th um, and 9th Doctor, and the 2nd and 6th Doctor. So... 
I guess what people are really upset about is, as I was flipping through the rules, it does show some cards that say if you have X Doctor and that Doctor is yet to be released because it's still part of an expansion they haven't done yet. So I can I can see why people feel it's incomplete. But just looking it over, it looks like you can have quite a bit of fun without it. The initial set only comes with four Doctors, but an expansion allows you to play up to six players. So... Um, Anyway, I just wanted to bring it up because it seems like a lot of fun, and if you're at all interested in that kind of thing, then you should definitely take a look. I'll be reviewing it in the next podcast, as well as the uh, other game we have, which uh, is the Discworld, Terry Pratchett, The Witches. So that one's super stylized and really cool, but we'll be talking about both of those uh, next time. Um, Anyway, let's move on to the last subject of this podcast. So the last thing I want to talk about is my new comic series called Allison Turner. It's based in the Hestia Chronicles universe, uh, another comic series I've done. And it's from a book that I wrote a long time ago but never published. And that was because at the very end, much as I loved the story, there was a whole lot of stuff I wanted to add to it in order to flesh it out. And I would have had to start over from scratch, which would have been fine, but I just didn't feel like I had the time to dedicate to really flesh it out properly. So that's what this comic is going to do, is I'm really going to get the opportunity to focus on Allison and really build her story from the point it should have been um, to the end. Uh, She's a really neat character. I'm kind of describing this as a cross between burn notice and James Bond and the Mandalorian and that, all that kind of stuff. Those, those are the inspirations. So Um, you'll see some really different artwork than my other comics. I'm spending a little bit more time trying to create this more graphic novel look. Um, and the way I do the text is a little bit different. I really love it so far. The first seven pages are up on the coffee site. The first page is up on the Tapastic site. So I'll have both the links down below. But if you really like that kind of lone wolf sci-fi sort of story, you want to see the origin of my character, uh, you want to see some really beautiful artwork, uh, this story is definitely going to be for you. I am going to work on the novel. I was thinking that my next book was going to be a detective noir thing with uh, my character Algier Stanton. But at this point, I'm really thinking that I need to revisit Allison because I'm very passionate about that right now. In fact, for part of my inspiration, uh, I went and watched Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace again, which I like both of those movies. I know that some people complain about Quantum, but I had a lot of fun with it. So uh, it it rekindled my love of the spy genre in general, and I really feel like I can do this story some justice now. So I'm very excited to see where I can take Allison and and where this story will go. Uh, I've got a lot of it planned out, but uh, I know how I work with comics, and I know that if I come up with a better idea, I'll try and spin it in there. So it's going to be a really exciting experience all around. Um, If you have read Hestia, you're going to be rewarded as well, because I will interweave some of the story elements from the Hestia Chronicles into this series. And all around, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So... I invite you to come along and enjoy the series with me. You can subscribe at Tapastic to be kept up to date on the free releases, or you can go and do the support at Coffee and get early access to each page. 
Um, again, there's seven up right now, and I should have the next three up by the uh, end of the week, possibly more. Um, I'm just working on the set design for the next piece of the puzzle, and that's a little bit more sci-fi. The, the story begins in sort of a forested area, so it was a little bit more of a natural look, and now I've got to go and do the, the ultra sci-fi look, which, which should be a lot of fun. But uh, anyway, that's Allison Turner, and it's available now, and I look forward to sharing it with everybody. And I want to thank you very much for uh, indulging this last little bit of uh, self-promotion. But uh, that is all for this week. And uh, I really want to thank you for stopping by. If you want to keep up with all of the projects I have going on, if you want to support the project, then please visit www.ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles or visit the website at www societycasefiles.com As always, I appreciate you listening and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks very much.